Hey there, hope you're doing well. This is a series that we've been doing. This is episode 13 on the Transitional Book of Doctrines and Discipline of the Global Methodist Church. This is for all people who want to understand how this new denomination is being set up, and especially as we approach the convening conference of 2024, what it is that we're going to be augmenting and, and discerning together shall be the the culture and the covenant going forward in this this new expression of the Methodist Wesleyan identity. So I'm Jeffrey Rickman. I'm the pastor in Nowata and Delaware, Oklahoma. Very small rural setting, but I have a nice studio here, and I have a passion for this, so I hope you do too. I hope you're ready to engage in this with me and TJ. TJ and I are both in plaid today. How are you, TJ? Yeah, we are. I didn't even, didn't even think that. I'm all right. We're going to finish... Uh section four part four today or we should mm-hmm. we don't sorry no we we will for sure and um next week we'll begin on the episcopacy and we know that that's something that a lot of people care about but today's section deals with very practical aspects of ministry last week we talked about uh being admitted into ordained ministry today we're going to start off with paragraph 417 which starts talking about leaves of absence we're going to be Uh, talking about retirement, and then uh, we'll conclude this section on um, lower-level ordained uh, ministers. So anything else to be said before we dive in, TJ? I don't think so. Let's uh, let's get into it. Okay. Paragraph 417, Leaves of Absence. I'll read first. A change in conference status may be affected by the following. And there are several points. Point one is voluntary leave process. Clergy may request in writing a voluntary temporary leave of absence of up to one year from their ministerial duties due to medical needs, family circumstances, or other personal issues. Transitional leaves may similarly be granted for clergy in good standing who are temporarily between appointments. Such a change in conference status may be granted or terminated by majority vote of the clergy members of the annual conference upon recommendation by two-thirds of the annual conference board of ministry. Between sessions of annual conference, a voluntary leave of absence may be granted or terminated by a two-thirds vote of the board board of ministry with the recommendation of the bishop and a two-thirds majority of the presiding elders or district superintendents. Renewal of voluntary leave may be made annually by the majority vote of the clergy session for a period of up to five years. After that time, the clergy person must choose either honorable location status, which we'll talk about in a bit, or senior status, which we will also talk about in a minute, with the approval of a majority of the clergy session. Either status discontinues the person's eligibility for appointment and does not require annual renewal of status. All right, so let's let's stop right there and uh, digest. So uh, did you notice any differences between that and what the United Methodist Church has? No, but I, to be fair, I never really looked into it in the, the Book of Discipline and the UMC. You, you never took a leave of absence at all? I've never, no, I've never taken one and I've never been interested in one. I've thought about sabbatical, which it covers here in a little bit, but yeah. no, I've, I've never... I don't know. Like it, it's something I've I've wondered about and tried to prepare for because you know different crises do come along where it's hard to function. Right. So in such an event, yeah. What would I want to do? You know. But I I haven't prepared in the sense that 
hey, I need to know the process in case, you right. know, somebody – anyway. Yeah, what's the, there's really no reason to look at it until you need it, I guess. Yeah, no? yeah. Yeah, um, it's <laughs> – so in my own former annual conference, there was a guy who uh, caused an issue because he he decided he was a woman and went through a, a, a transition in, to being a woman – and they put him on, I think he went on voluntary leave. Before Oklahoma or Oklahoma? Oklahoma, yeah. Oh, okay. This was just a couple of years ago. I thought I told you about no, this. I, don't, I guess I don't remember this. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, it was it, it was almost a thing because he was still considered clergy, but he was not appointed anywhere because he was on leave. So there, it just wasn't super scandalous, you know. Uh, I mean, it's still... a unfortunate but um that's not really what this is designed for yeah. it says medical needs family circumstances other personal issues i yeah. guess changing your sex could be a i mean that's, well yeah depending on how far he wants to go i guess it does involve medical issues yeah well it will create medical issues at some point but it's, yeah that's that's a whole other thing um yeah, I, I mean that seems pretty straightforward to me. The whole the whole paragraph. You want to leave apps. I I kind of like how it has to be renewed every single year. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, you get five years. If there's still something going on after five years, then you need to go into senior status or uh, whatever the other one was, uh, honorable location yeah. status. So I mean yeah. that makes sense. You can't just indefinitely be on on leave. So you gotta here's here's the reason I need to be need to be on leave. You guys have to vote for it, mm -hmm. approve it, and if it goes past that, then we're looking at something else. So, and I feel like there just needs to be a tiny little sermon here. There are a lot of people that get defensive about this like who are they to say whether or not I have a valid excuse for needing time off of ministry. But if you don't want to be scrutinized, you shouldn't really be a Methodist because the whole thing is we watch over one another in love and that's part of it, you know. Sometimes we get too into ourselves and we need somebody to tell us Hey, you need to get over it. You know, you need you need to move on. Or if you can't move on, we need to move you out of this position that you're in. So, um, anything else you want to say before we move on? No, I don't. I don't think so. I think that one's like I said. I think that's pretty straightforward. Okay, let's do point two: voluntary leave conditions. Clergy persons on voluntary leave shall have no claim on conference funds. I wasn't sure. I wasn't a couple of times in the section we're going to deal with who has claim on conference funds, and I'm not sure what that would mean at all. Like, have you gotten this? I guess if there so when I read it, I, I assume there there are some circumstances that the annual conference would be paying for this. In most cases, it was going to be the local church because it, it does make. Yeah, I'm just not familiar that. with any situations other than like a church planter where the conference is paying anything for maybe individual. like a what, what is the uh, uh, what we talked about last week? Um, chaplains, they're usually maybe? chaplains are funded by wherever they're placed. Yeah, I guess it would depend on on the circumstance. Mm -hmm. So surely there are some well conference employees. Okay. Yeah, that would definitely make sense. So they're they're being paid for. Um, yeah, if they, they're they ordained. Would to them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Bishop, is it? Yeah, that would include bishops too. I would assume. Hmm. I don't think you can have a man a bishop on voluntary leave. Is I there a different? Is there? Well, surely they have some kind of circumstances that, like medical leave. Of course, that they would need that at some point. Sure. Possibly. Um, but not for a full year. 
Yeah, it depends on their or age. P- I would paternity think. leave, maternity leave. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah, but that's yeah, that's yeah. that's only three months. Mm-hmm. I think is what it allows for. But um, I, I don't know if there's a different like fund for bishops like there is in the. Uh, oh yeah, like an Episcopal fund. Yeah, I don't know. That's something to ask Jeff well, Pospisil when I talk to him. Yeah, yeah, and I guess there's a whole. Then we're going to get to that section next week. Oh right, right, so, right, right, right. Yeah, maybe not that specific section, but bishops in general. Yeah. So I guess we'll find out then. All right. Well, let's get back to point two. Um, they have no claim on conference f- funds, but may be eligible to continue in conference health programs through their own contributions. They may serve on annual conference commissions, committees, or boards, as well as vote for clergy delegates to general or regional conferences. Persons on voluntary leave of six months or longer are considered inactive and, except for election of clergy delegates, do not have vote at the annual conference. However, they do remain members of the annual conference with voice, just not vote. They may continue to engage in part-time unpaid ministry as a volunteer. Those on voluntary leave shall continue to be amenable to the annual conference for their conduct and the performance of ministry. So they're not in trouble for anything. They've not had their voice removed. They do lose their voice after six months if it, if it turns out being that, that bad. But this, the, 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 the taste, the sense you get about people on voluntary. They lose their, they lose their vote. They don't necessarily, they don't lose their voice. Right. Okay. Yeah. If I misspoke, thank you for correcting me. Um, but anyway, the, the main thing here being, they're not in trouble for anything. Right, There's a, yeah. They can still serve in different capacities, and you there's no question marks. still get insurance as long as you pay for it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Okay. All right, let's go on to sabbaticals then. Point three, sabbatical leave. Clergy who have been serving in a full-time appointment for six consecutive years may be granted sabbatical leave for a program of study, travel, or renewal. Sabbatical leaves of three months or less may be granted by the Pastor Parish Relations Committee with the approval of the presiding elder. A longer sabbatical leave of up to one year must be approved by the conference's Board of Ministry. Compensation for the clergy during a sabbatical of three months or less shall be continued by the local church. Longer sabbaticals shall be the responsibility of the individuals involved, though the support of the congregation and others is encouraged. So there's an expectation that local churches afford this mm-hmm. to clergy. It, it says, it's pretty clear it should only be after six years of full-time yeah. work, and then it's not clear on it can be a short sabbatical of three months or less, or it can be a longer sabbatical, but local this is obligating local churches to fund up to three months. Short ones, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which... I mean, yeah, I guess it would be up to the uh, how the local church fun- functions if there's like a, a vacation period granted to the uh, um, pastor. Like, I don't yeah, know. I don't think when we covered, we've covered the local church and we've covered ordained clergy. I don't think there's been any expectations set for minimum number of vacation days. Yeah, I don't each. think it's said that at all, has it? No, and generally in each annual conference, they set the minimum minimum right. standards and then for you, stuff. I assume the churches would do the do the same too. Like, 
Well, so usually it's conference policies that are adopted every year at annual conference that they just expect, lo- at least in the United Methodist Church, they expected local churches to adopt. So the annual conference would set a bar, but churches could go above that. Yes, Yeah. but so. no lower. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Anything else to say about sabbaticals? Um, I don't. I don't think so. Um, yeah, I, for I guess for some reason six years seems a lot to me. Um, but again, that would like depend on okay, what other what other time off do the churches allow the clergy? Like if they've already if they already let them have some kind of time off for however long, then. That that doesn't seem like a whole lot, but if it's like, no, we're not gonna provide this if if you have a a need or just needed vacation or something. Uh, then so that seems like a culturally, lot. okay. So obviously, the the word sabbatical comes from Sabbath, you know, sure. which is the seventh day of the week. It's the, it comes from the Hebrew "stop it" is essentially what it means, but it's time for rest and renewal. But the notion is not, hey, we'll give, we'll pay for three months for you to sit in the parsonage and watch Netflix all day. That's that is not it. It's, um, hey, if you need to go study in a monastery for a bit, if you need um, uh, a time of uh, going to the Holy Land or taking an intensive uh, course of study at a seminary, so that you can be much more informed on this stuff. This this is the time to really dive into something or. Um, have a kind of holy rest. Sure, okay, it's not a not a vacation. No, there's, no, there's it really the, shouldn't be. If it's used as a vacation, they're abusing the system. Right, okay, yeah. Okay. All right, let's go on to point four, involuntary leave process. So this is when somebody does not want to be on leave. This does carry the connotation. Up till now, there has not been a notion that, that they've done anything wrong, but this this is the notion that right, they've done yeah. something wrong. Involuntary leaves may be requested by the bishop, two-thirds of the presiding elders, and a two-thirds vote of the annual conference. I thought it said or, but it's and, of the annual conference board of ministry. Okay, so all those bodies have to be on board for involuntary leave. The bishop, the district superintendents, and the The board board of ministry. ministry. Yeah. Yeah, okay. The board shall also determine what, if any, disciplinary action or other conditions are required— Examples, uh, therapy, remedial education, etc. Placing a person on involuntary leave shall require a two-thirds vote of the clergy members meeting in executive sessions. So there's recommending a person for involuntary leave, and then there's enacting it. That's how I understood this. So it's recommended by those three. If those three bodies are recommending it, they bring it to the annual conference session where the ordained clergy vote on it. Vote on it, Okay. Which seems cumbersome to me, and in my mind, if if it was my denomination, be bishop can put anyone on leave at any point in time if they're acting out. Yeah, I guess the idea behind that would be like, okay, we're gonna try to um, ferret out any power hungry bishops or power hungry members of the uh, annual conference. So you got to have multiple parties involved. Yeah, yeah. Separation of powers. Yeah, it's very concerned about abuse yeah. of power. But then the cost of that is, you know, what if you get an allegation that some pastor is abusing kids in the church and uh, you have to get all these people on board and get a vote of the annual conference before you can actually remove them from the pulpit? You know, I'm more concerned about yeah, that, that situation than about some pastor getting unjustly removed. Right. Um, yeah. 
But maybe maybe there's another process for well. So if if there's a pastor that does that, surely the local church could like get that done real quick. Like, okay, we're taking him out of he's not going to be in a pastor position at all. We're getting him out of the situation, and then the annual conference can take care of this and put him on leave of absence. Or... Hypothetically, yes. Sure. But the problem is that a lot of local churches will stand by their pastor even when credible allegations have been made based yeah, on how long yeah. they've been there and what kind of cult of personality there is. True. So the, one, of the, one of the features of Episcopal leadership is supposed to be that it can act more decisively than a local church where there's a lot of confusion at times. But if, a, if, if we so water down the role of a bishop that he is unable to move fast at all, then, then that removes one of the strengths of an Episcopal structure. Yeah, I guess there's, I mean, arguments for and against it. Yeah. Either, either way. Let's go back. Um, placing a person on involuntary leave shall require two-thirds vote of the clergy members meeting in executive session. The fair process for administrative hearings shall be followed in any involuntary leave procedure. So that's in paragraph 814. Which is way out there. Way out. Where are we? What paragraph four, are we? 417? Yeah, so yeah, we've 17. already oh eight fourteen, not four fourteen. Okay, yeah, so yeah. okay, this is this is described in eight fourteen. All right, we'll 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 be dealing with that in a few weeks. When an end to the involuntary leave of absence is initiated by the bishop and a two thirds majority of the presiding elders, the annual conference board of ministry shall review the circumstances surrounding the granting of the status to determine if the conditions of the leave have been met. If the board determines that such is not the case, it may continue involuntary leave of absence. Involuntary leave may continue for up to five years from when it was first granted, at which time the board must pursue administrative location, which we'll cover momentarily. Termination of involuntary leave shall require a two-thirds vote of the board of ministry and a two-thirds vote of the clergy members meeting in executive session see my uh, previous episodes for my concerns on two-thirds being an insufficient um, metric. Yeah, so, okay, so do you want to get rid of the involuntary leave, then the bishop has to initiate it, and two-thirds of the presiding of the district superintendents, um, and then the board of ministry will review it and determine if it's good, and then after that... Um, I guess all the clergy vote on it again. Yeah. So same process for initiating it as removing it. Yeah, similar. Well, except I don't think... So wait, do clergy vote in executive session? Yes. Okay, so yeah, it does seem to be pretty... Yeah, a mirror. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right to point it out that way. Okay. So, and then, you know, I'm thinking... This doesn't directly connect to the complaint process, so this makes me think that this is a separate thing, which is like more basic. Like we just get the sense that this person is, this clergy is struggling. He wants to continue, but he's obviously needing time some some time to mourn, or he just needs some more classes on administration. This this doesn't seem like. Well, the, yeah. So that may be requested by the bishop the district superintendents and the board of ministry, so it doesn't make any room for other clergy members, com like, complaining. Yeah. 
okay, so maybe I misread this. It's not necessarily this person did anything wrong, but it's more like they just they just need some a correction period. We need to put them on a program. We need to put somebody else in their pulpit for a little bit or, uh, yeah, okay, I think I've misread kind of the intention of this. Yeah, I guess is there, did we, we haven't gone over a complaint process at all. No. Okay. No, and surely it's later on. I, oh, I, yeah. I assume it's in par, in the in the 800s. So uh, why don't you, well, no, well, let's just move on for now. Point five, involuntary leave conditions. Clergy persons on involuntary leave shall have no claim on annual conference funds, and the conference shall assume no responsibility for salary, pension, or other benefits during the leave of absence. But the clergy person may be eligible to continue in conference health programs through their own contributions. Clergy on involuntary leave shall not participate in the commissions, committees, or boards of the district or annual conference. So that's one difference between involuntary and voluntary. Um, I was a half listening to that because I did jump ahead to part eight, and that part eight is uh, judicial administration, and yeah. 803 is complaints. Okay. So yeah, 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 yeah. There's a whole section to, for that specifically. Okay. I'm glad you looked at that. I was I was going to ask you, but then I knew it would distract you. <laughs> so, yeah, 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 definitely distract. So me, the part you were distracted from is in point five. It says leave. involuntary leave. You cannot be a part of conference commissions and committees. Okay, that makes sense. You're, but you're, but when you're on voluntary leave, you can. Yeah. Okay. okay. There, uh, yeah, I don't have any. I don't see any issue with that. So they they shall be in the inactive status with no voice or vote at annual conference. So that's another difference. Uh, voluntary. You don't get, after a while, you don't get a vote. Or, yeah, you always a, have a voice for up to, voice. to three months or six months you had a vote, but then you lose it. Six so. months or longer. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, those on involuntary leave shall continue to be amenable to the annual conference for their conduct and shall not participate in any official acts of ministry during the leave. So that's okay. why there's kind of a stink on it. Any official acts of ministry. So like no marriages, no sacraments, right. like yeah. nothing like that. Okay. Yeah. yeah. If we hear about you marrying a couple on a cruise line, right. you're out. Yeah. And then also just to say like you are still morally responsible to the church. So if we hear about you acting up, you know, there was there was a pastor close to here, a lady pastor, who um, was on leave, and she got wasted on the 4th of July, oh, no. had a family feud, the police got called, she assaulted a police officer, <laughs> and then she was summarily removed from ministry for obvious reasons, right. but she fought it saying, I was on leave. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so... So this is just, you know, explicit, you know, just even if you're on leave, uh, if you misbehave, you're out. Yeah, act like a Christian when you're on leave. <laughs> Don't assault police officers. Yeah, that's, that's pretty basic. Okay. Uh. I forgot I knew that story. All right, uh, point six, maternity and paternity leave. Any clergy member, including both spouses and a clergy couple, may request maternity or paternity leave for up to three months at the birth or arrival of a child into the home for purposes of adoption or fostering. Such leaves shall be granted by the Pastor Parish Relations Committee in consultation with the presiding elder. That word shall is important there. During the leave, the clergy person's annual conference status will remain unchanged, and the health and benefit plans will remain in force. Compensation shall be provided by the salary-paying unit for no less than two months of leave, and the presiding elder shall provide for the pastoral needs of the congregation as appropriate. Okay, so... That makes room for 
adoption, um, biological children yeah. being born, obviously. Both. Yeah. yeah. Um, you get three months. Uh, what else? Up to three months. Up um, to three months, only two of which is paid. Right. Compulsory paid. Yeah. The church can, of course, agree to pay more than that. Right. And then the district superintendent will take over in place of the pastor. Yeah, I don't know if that means we'll preach, but we'll pass, uh, take care of pastoral needs. So if there's right. a funeral needs being oh, done okay. or somebody needs pastoral counseling. Yeah, I guess that would be up to the church who they decide to... Right. They decide, well, the church and the district superintendent. If the district superintendent does want to preach, I'm sure the church is probably not going to say, uh, no. Well, I mean, they could. <laughs> no, they'll, the, so what, what, uh, it seems pretty explicitly clear here before the baby or a foster child comes, it's expected that the church has already been meeting with the presiding right. elder. There's a plan in place. It's not something that you're just, uh, surprised by. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Guess there's a new what, child. We gotta we gotta come up with a plan right now. Yeah. No, there should be a plan already in place. Everybody feels good about, and you just execute the plan. Right. Yeah. Okay. I, that, yeah, that one's pretty straightforward. I don't. It's it's also very clear. It doesn't matter if you're a father or mother. Like once upon a time, the expectation was only that women got maternity leave. Yeah, this one says specifically maternity and paternity. Yeah. So so hypothetically, you know, I've had four kids. I got a fifth on the way. Hypothetically, I could call our super uh, uh, presiding elder and set up a meeting with the church and say, hey, I want three months, uh, two months paid leave when baby number five comes. Right. I'm not going to do that. The reason I'm not going to do that is is because uh, I find it much more stressful and disruptive to take a long time off and then come back in because where a vacuum gets filled and then you have to displace whatever fills it. It's, it's just so it's, it's better in my mind just to keep going, but uh, that's that's an option afforded all clergy. All right, point seven, honorable or administrative location. Persons who have been placed on honorable location uh, with consent, so if they didn't consent, this doesn't apply apparently, or administrative location, oh, that's without consent, yeah. okay, and then that references a, a judicial procedure, I guess. I'm not sure what JPP stands for. Do you know? Um, I do not. Hold on. Probably find out if you if you go ahead and read that. Yeah, I'll go ahead and read it. They are no longer members of the annual conference. They shall not have voice or vote at the annual conference unless specifically granted voice by the annual conference. Their membership shall be held in a local church of their choice with the written consent of the pastor in charge. And in the case of administrative location, the pastor parish relations committee. Any ministerial service is limited to the church charge where they hold membership and must be only with the written consent of the pastor in charge. JPP stands for Judicial Practices and Procedures. That's paragraph 802 that talks about that. Um, okay. It's real short. I can read it if you want. No, let's, okay. let's have a cliffhanger. Keep people hungry, you know. They'll be watching for when we get to the <laughs> 800s. Um. So I'm still a little okay. So there's honorable location when people have agreed to be removed. Yeah. So then, that's after you have to go on that after six years of voluntary leave, right? Um. Yeah. I th- uh, that I think I remember that. Yeah. So voluntary leave. If you're going on that for more than six years, they've got to put you on um, honorable location. And then was there a time period for? 
Yeah, I think yeah they have a they come up with a program for you, and it's also six years um, for uh, administrative location. So, in both cases, they still allow for you to do limited ministry in the local church where you're located, but it has to be with written consent from the pastor there. So, in neither event is it you've done something really bad and cannot be at all tied to us. It's You can be a member of a local church. You can even serve in a pastoral capacity, sort of, but we just can't have you in ordained leadership or ministry. So this is just someone who's unstable, very sick, uh, very disabled something, in some way. Something something crazy is going on. Yeah. It says, yeah, it says they're no longer members of the annual conference. Yeah, so all ordained clergy are technically not members of the local church. They're members of right. the annual conference. So it's saying you can hold membership in a local church, but not in the conference anymore. Okay. Okay. Yeah, do you have any... Uh... Just something that got my mind going on this was if clergy are members of the conference and not of the local church, then technically it makes sense that they should be tithing to the annual conference and not the local church. Interesting. That's yeah. a that's an argument that Chris Ritter and David Donan had Donan had about uh, financial models for funding annual conferences. That's how Assemblies of God funds their conferences is through the tithes of their clergy. But that's not how the United Methodist Church did it. Interesting. I yeah, guess right? that's one way to do it. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I never thought about that. Yeah, maybe maybe for a think piece later on down the line. But for now, we need to move on. Um, well, I was going to ask you if there was anything like anything like that in the United Methodist Church, similar to that, the honorable location or administrative location. I have I have heard of honorable location. I've okay. never known what it meant. I'm assuming that there is a one-to-one correspondence here, somewhere. but I could be wrong. Okay. Okay. All right. Would you read paragraph 418? I would. We're 418 senior status. Following this scriptural pattern, there is no retirement for clergy or laity from the work of God's kingdom. However, clergy persons serving in appointments may choose senior status within the annual conference with the approval of a majority of the board of ministry and a majority of the clergy session. There is no mandatory age for such status. Senior status releases clergy members from any obligation to accept an appointment to ministry from a bishop. Through clergy, though clergy in in senior status may voluntarily accept an appointment from a bishop to any ministry setting for which they qualify. Senior clergy, including the bishop emeriti, uh, retain their active retain their active status and rights to both voice and vote at annual conference if they fulfill either of the following conditions: a They are within seven years of the effective date of their aligning with the Global Methodist Church or the end of their last appointment, whichever is later, provided that they notify the conference secretary at least 90 days prior to the annual conference session of their intention to participate as a voting member, or B, they are under appointment by the bishop for at least one quarter time, no notification necessary. Senior, senior clergy not qualifying under the preceding sentence retain voice but not vote at the annual conference. Those in senior status, whether active or inactive, may be elected as a delegate to general or regional conferences and serve on district or annual conference uh, commissions, committees, or boards. 
So I called Karen Nicholas, who's the chair of the TLC, to make sure I understood this correctly because I had never even thought of this. A lot of people don't know it's an issue. Old people who are not staying informed voting, they form voting blocks that are self-interested in nature. And they can be really destructive. Um, so whether you're talking about on a governmental level or on a church level, there are a lot of people who did their time, but they don't feel the moral obligation to stay informed or understand why someone would take a position that isn't suiting old folks. And a lot of them feel very entitled to use the system that they built up for self-benefit, even, you know, I'll talk about Oklahoma. In Oklahoma, it just became financially unfeasible to support um, a number of the health benefits that they gave themselves, as, as a lot of them just didn't die, and the conference was bringing in less money. We couldn't uh, support a lot of the stuff that they grew used to, and yet they uh, fundamentally rejected they didn't care that the money wasn't there, and so they they mandated that they pay it anyway. So they're they're <laughs> destroying the conference. Um, how do you limit the voice of retired older folks? Well, first off, you get rid of this notion of retired. You know, nobody's yeah. ever retired. You can have this status that has no mandatory age. Like technically, I could apply to become senior clergy, mm -hmm. um, and then in that sense, I retain voice and vote. Only for six years outside of clergy, right? Is that... Uh, I think it was... Was it seven years? Seven years. Um, hold on, I'll find it. Um, it was after point eight, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, they are within seven years of their Seven years. Date. Okay, so seven years, I've got it. And then after that, I'm out. Yeah. Unless I've got a quarter-time appointment, in which case I'm still staying connected. I yeah. still understand. But the whole notion is once you have had uh, a long enough time away from the pulpit... You still got a voice. You can still speak. You can even serve as a, a delegate, on uh, serve in different capacities. But no, you don't have a vote anymore, and so that effectively breaks up any kind of uh, old folks voting block. I, I think I told I told Kara. I think this is one of the smartest things that they've done to change what the United Methodist Church. I mean, I hate to to say it. but old folks really have harmed the United Methodist Church in a lot of ways. Um, so much pushback. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they've done they've they've done what? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's just yeah. I, don't I, I to... can yeah. No, I can I can I, I can see the problem with having essentially inactive older people in a conference. Yeah, they've they've done their time, but you can continue. Like, I mean, for a quarter time appointment, if you're doing a quarter time appointment, you still get a voice and a vote. That doesn't seem like a lot to me. Yeah. So, like, you can essentially retire and do quarter time, and then still retain all of it. But if you're not doing anything at all, like, they give you seven years. Yeah. And then, yeah. Sorry. See last week's episode for my diatribe on the overlap between star starship troopers and uh, the church. Um, do it. Do in time. O only those who can vote. Or right, only one. only you only get citizenship if you're if you're in the military. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I I I can see saying this is a young person. Um, I'm sure I would disagree with if I was older and I was doing this. I'd be like, no, shut up, youngin. Yeah, I want my vote. I did my time. Yeah, 
Yeah, uh, I haven't heard any older folks complain about being disenfranchised of their vote yet, which I don't know if, I don't know how many older folks are aware of it, but I just think, you know, if I were an older person, what would I need to hear to be okay with this? Well, they're not losing their their benefits. They're just losing their vote to to do stuff at annual conference. Yeah. So you still get to retain all your benefits. Well, so it comes down to, okay, so they're, they're not going to have a lot of the frills in the GMC that they had in the UMC anyway. But, I mean, having a vote is a big deal that we fought a war over it to start sure. this nation. So, yeah, there are a lot of people who, once they're disenfranchised of a vote, who, yeah, it, I guess they don't care as much at this point because GMC is new. But once you've given your life to an institution, but then you can't decide on its future course. Well, and I guess I can see, uh, like— the point where I'd be like, no, these these older folks need to retain their vote is older folks tend to be more conservative. And if we've got a bunch of young young people coming in and just sucking up all the votes and then turning the uh, conference or the GMC into whatever they determine is theologically correct or so socially okay, that that can be an issue. In the United Methodist Church, the older folks have not been more conservative really? than the younger folks. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I know demographically in the United States they have been, but when you're talking about where older votes have been on annual conference level, generally, I mean, in Oklahoma, the retired vote was further left. Yeah. That kind of surprises me. Yeah. I guess I just assumed, like, they're older, they'd be more conservative. No. So both on the national government level and on this so the fi- the fiscal impact they have is they essentially insist on draining money from other places to benefit themselves so that's 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 the impact that they've had on the annual conference level sure i can see that like with you yeah okay but then when you're talking about social issues the the most organized the most active people in the denomination young middling or old have been progressive left. They're the ones that organize to vote and, and show up. So it's not that there are no conservative older folks. It's just that the ones that organize and vote and impact the, the direction of annual conferences lean left. Huh. Okay. Yeah. So we might not even see that demographic in the GMC because now it's kind of plotted a different course, kind of rebuking the left. But I just think there are certain forces that... Ent- it's like... Uh, uh, based on one's social location, one's views change. So one of the things we noticed in the United Methodist Church is that someone who had a pretty good theological stance before they became a bishop, once they became a, a bishop, suddenly things changed. You know, And I think that there are a lot of things that in people are solid when they're younger or middle-aged that when they get older, they just kind of lose their moorings, a lot of them. Uh, something changes. And so uh, it's good just to marry one's vote to one service in the church. I think that's the thought here. I wonder if I okay. just lost half of my <laughs> base. Your, your, your audience is, is older. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I might take that out later. We'll see. Paragraph 419. I'll no, let, them, let them disagree. Let's, it's, yeah. We want, we want comments. If we're wrong, tell us we're wrong. Oh, yeah. We definitely want to. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for saying that. Paragraph 419. Transitional provisions. Point one. Clergy who are current or former ordained. Hold on. Yeah, tell us, tell us we're wrong, and tell us why we're wrong. Not just tell us we're wrong, because I don't care. I want to know why. Anyways, go ahead. Yeah. Clergy who are current or former ordained 
members of the United Methodist Church may apply to the Transitional Leadership Council or a body that it designates to be received as clergy members of the GMC and to have their ordained status recognized. The application shall be accompanied by a copy of the applicant's ordination certificate and shall include an explicit affirmation of the doctrines and social witness set forth in the Transitional Book of Doctrines and Discipline and an agreement to abide by its discipline. The applicant shall consent to a background check. The TLC or body it designates shall review the application and vote on each application received. An affirmative vote on each application shall result in the applicant being admitted to clergy membership in the GMC and recognition of the applicant's ordained status in the GMC. So this is the process that I went through that thousands of clergy have already gone through. It's just establishing the process whereby United Methodist explicit clergy are able to transfer in. Okay. So may apply to the trans... Uh, okay. Point two, current or former associate members and local licensed pastors in the United Methodist Church. Okay, this is the process I went through because I was an LLP. Point okay, A. Okay, so let me, let me make sure I got this right. There's a clergy person... Um, Specifically, we're the local licensed pastors, what we're getting into. Yeah. That wants to leave the UMC, join the GMC. This yeah. is the process for doing that. Yep. Okay. Okay. Just making sure we're on the same page. All right. Point A. Persons who are current or former associate members or local licensed pastors in the UMC may apply for clergy membership in the GMC and to be ordained as a deacon or elder. Each application shall be evaluated by the Transitional Leadership Council bodies designed, designated for that purpose. The application must include a copy of the certificate or license from the person's service in the UMC, a transcript of courses completed to meet the requirements of paragraph 407, and a declaration that the applicant affirms the doctrines and social witness set forth in this transitional book of doctrines and discipline, agrees to abide by its discipline. Those meeting the qualifications for ordination as deacons or elders set forth in this chapter shall, with the approval of the TLC, or the body designated by it be ordained at a service convened for that purpose. If an associate member or a local licensed pastor meets the educational requirements to be ordained as an elder and has served in the UMC for at least two years, the two-year period of minimum service as a deacon in paragraph 410.1.A shall not be applicable and the person shall immediately be ordained as a deacon and then as an elder at the same annual conference session following approval by its clergy session. So that's exactly what happened to me. Point B, those current or formal LLPs in the UMC not meeting the qualifications for ordination as a deacon or elder in the GMC may be granted a license by action of the TLC as a local pastor for a one-year term renewable for two additional years by the Board of Ministry or the annual conference in which they are appointed while they work toward meeting the qualifications for ordination as a deacon in the GMC, provided that they are appointed to a pastor, uh, to pastor a local church. After the second renewal of the license, if that person has not met the qualifications for ordination as a deacon, their authority to pastor a local church shall cease. The license shall terminate if the person ceases to be appointed as pastor of a local church. The clergy status as a local pastor under this paragraph is limited to the circumstances described here, is transitional in nature, and shall cease to exist following the convening general conference of the GMC. A pastor operating under a license granted under this provision shall be a clergy member of the GMC while licensed, shall have sacramental authority in their appointment, and shall have full voice and vote on all matters except the ordination and conference relations of deacons and elders." 
Such a person shall be under the supervision of the Board of Ministry of the annual conference in which they're appointed, and a supervising elder appointed by a presiding elder, a president pro tem, or a bishop. All right, okay. that's a lot. That's a lot. Explain this to me because I'm not, I'm not following. So there's local licensed pastors that have done all the things necessary to become an elder in the GMC or deacon, let them through. There are others that were serving in the UMC as an LLP that hadn't crossed all their T's and dotted all their I's. They will get... Such as like schooling or what? Yeah. That they didn't do. Yeah, or psych evaluation or, you know, there are different things along the lines. So okay. yeah, there would, they would mostly be schooling, I think. So the the notion would be we will give them a one-year period to complete this stuff. And it can be renewed once or maybe twice. But if they still haven't completed it, then they're out. And if they try to only focus on that and not do ministry, they're also out. You know, you have to complete your requirements and serve in the pulpit at the same time. So it really turns up the, the pressure on somebody who's... I think they're trying to take people who've been sitting on the fence. You know, there are people like me who just couldn't make it through because the institution just was hostile to me. There are other people who are fence sitters. They want the benefits of preaching, but they don't want the responsibilities of, of being equipped. And they're trying to help those people... Um, uh, pick a side, do do what they're going to do. Gotcha. Yeah, because the local licensed pastor thing is not something that the GMC wants to continue. No. Yeah. No, they only want ordained clergy and laity. They don't want this. Well, what around. essentially happened in the United Methodist Church was you created second-class clergy. Right. There was like a status thing, and GMC is going, nope, you're either clergy or you're laity. And both sense. are great, but we're not going to have like the upper-class tenured clergy and the lower-class Right. Salt of the earth yeah. clergy. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. I, I like that. Point three, clergy will be placed in the annual conference in which their appointment is located or may transfer to a different annual conference in the connection. The clergy person will be subject to a bishop of that annual conference for appointment. Prior to the convening general conference of the GMC, it is expected that the appointments of clergy serving congregations in which both transition into the global Methodist church will be retained unless a change is needed because of illness, family situation, death, the election of senior status, clergy misconduct, or the financial exigencies of the congregation. So that's just saying if a church and their pastor both transfer to the GMC at the same time, then the bishop is not going to mess with them. They're not going to get moved anywhere until the convening conference. It's only after that point that that there might be some reshuffling of the deck sometimes. Okay. And Okay. And that shouldn't freak people out too much. The appointment process is going to be much more concerned with the the wishes of a local congregation. So there's not going to be many situations in which a congregation is wanting to hold on to a, its pastor and the pastor is moved against their will. And that gets covered pretty—I think it gets covered in the next section with Episcopal leadership. All right, point four. Persons in the candidacy process in the UMC who desire to affiliate with the GMC prior to its convening uh, conference shall be received by the annual conference board of ministry or the TLC design designated body handling candidates. The candidate shall comply with the provisions of paragraph 406, which we've covered, and their membership in a congregation in the UMC for at least one year shall satisfy the membership requirement of paragraph 406. The candidate shall request a copy of all candidacy candidacy files held by their former district or annual conference be forwarded to the body credentialing candidates 
man, I wonder if Boards of Ordain Ministry and the UMC are going to at all honor that, or if they're just going to be like, y'all have to generate your own now. Yeah, I'm sure there's some of them that are going to be petty. Yeah. Uh, candidates shall continue at the point in the process where they are in the UMC. Candidates will not need to repeat steps or requirements they have already completed. Candidates, well, again, if they can't substantiate that they've already done certain steps in the Board of Ordained Ministry, then it seems to me they are going to have to redo some of it just to say, okay, we can confirm that they did it. I guess we'll we'll see. Candidates eligible to be ordained under the qualifications of this chapter may move toward ordination at the next annual conference session under the processes laid out in this chapter. So this was not dealing with local license. This is just people at the starting of the ordained ministry process, just candidates. That makes sense. So the local license that was so two was local license pastor four is not. This is already ordained clergy or clergy that people that want to be. This is laity. This is laity that are candidates to become clergy. Okay. So it's saying they've already started in the UMC. They haven't gotten to any place where they're actually preaching or leading yet. So they they don't have to be in the pulpit. But uh, we're just gonna we're gonna take them where they are and, and lead them in that direction. Okay. Point five. The Transitional Leadership Council or its designee may in its sole discretion grant exceptions to the requirements upon petition of a person seeking certification as a candidate or conference membership and ordination during the period preceding the convening general conference of the GMC. So I think that's just saying this will be the general structure, but we'll do what we want. Right, yeah. <laughs> the, the, okay, so the Transitional Leadership Council, that's at the – the um, general conference level, or is that the annual? Is there an, each one at like an annual conference level? No, there's not a TLC of an annual conference. Okay, so it's just it's at the top, very top. Yeah, just one of them. Yeah. Okay. It's a big group chaired by Karen Nicholas Oki from Oklahoma City. Um, but yeah, it's they they are essentially a, a group dictatorship, benevolent dictatorship. Gotcha. Okay, they're deciding who what clergy gets in. Yeah. As of right now. Yeah. Okay. So if all of a sudden, like, um, oh, I don't know, who's a big name pastor? Uh, with uh, If all of a sudden Life Church wanted to associate with the GMC, but they're, what is it, Craig Rochelle? Is Craig that Rochelle, the name? yeah. And he didn't satisfy the requirements, but we want all those churches, then the TLC could be like, uh, forget about the requirements. Rochelle's in. He's ordained. Let him in. To be fair, he wasn't ordained before. In the UMC, yeah, was he was. He, a, I, I think he I was, know he, he was, was in Methodist. ministry. I know he came out of the UMC. Was he fully ordained? I don't know, maybe I know he was a Methodist, and I just guess I just assumed that he was a United Methodist. Um, hold on, he definitely was United Methodist. I know this is something that the United Methodist Annual Conference was kicking itself for whenever he started. Well, he was he was a pastor at uh, First Church, wasn't Tulsa? He? Yeah, uh, no, OKC. Okay, I don't know what his appointment history was. I'm pretty sure that's where he was at. So also interesting history in Tulsa, uh, liberal larger church, Boston Avenue, once accepted into membership Oral Roberts, who in the 1970s, uh, well, for several decades actually, was a huge televangelist, uh, word of power, word of faith movement um, in the Tulsa area. There was some kind of marriage that they were entertaining between his charismatic expression of the Christian faith and the United Methodist mainline thing maintained for a few years, but eventually fell apart. So anyway, I, I think this just makes uh, provision for uh, 
such an arrangement to be made where we can kind of accommodate someone to come in and have fewer hurdles than the average bear. I was just, I, I, I don't know, I don't know what you're saying because I was half paying attention. Um, but I, he was the associate pastor at First UMC in Oklahoma City in 1995 during the bombing. Oklahoma City bombing. It was during the bombing he was yeah. there. I can't believe pastor. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah, he went to Phillips Theological Seminary, which. I I don't I've I've watched a couple of his sermons, um, and I've been to a life church, but uh, Phillips Theological Seminary is pretty pretty. Oh, it's super liberal out there. I don't have anything good to say about no. Phillips. It's a yeah, it's a Disciples of Christ seminary, so that that should say it all. <laughs> all right, well, uh, we we've covered the rest of part four. Next week we begin with part five, the superintendency. It's going to deal with the role and function of bishops as we understand it. This next section is going to be under heavy scrutiny at the convening conference. A lot of people, including David Doan, and I've done an interview with him, are of the mind that this is the most important part to figure out if the GMC is going to get things right. I'm not of that mind. I don't think it's the least important part. I just think uh, culture... Uh, the integrity of the denomination is downstream from culture, so the culture angle is what I'm much more concerned about. But this matters, so um, we'll try and do our homework before next week so that we have worthy things to say. Uh, is there anything else you want to say about this one that you want to wrap up? I don't think so. Um, it is what it is. Okay. It's okay. i ready for next one. Um. So yeah, I said I, I guess the main rub this week is going to be on the role of retired clergy and the kind of maybe unfair things that I've said about the the role that older voting blocks play in certain bodies. So uh, make sure to to have a robust pushback that is substantial and respectful. If I've said anything that's disrespectful or dishonest, I'll I'll correct. Well, I, I haven't said anything I don't mean, but if I've said something wrongheaded, I'll, I'll apologize. But at least at this point, I'm thinking that this is one of the cultural changes in the GMC that needs to happen if uh, if it's not going to uh, descend into institutional malaise that the United Methodist Church is in. And that's not to say that all old people are full of malaise. I'm just making generalizations, and I think there's a point. There's a purpose to that, so... All right, any other way you want to wrap things up? Nope. If you're going to give us pushback, give us a uh, give us a reason. Okay. And uh I mean, you address you address most of the comments. So. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, we appreciate you tuning in. Um this stuff matters and uh feel free to share it if you think it's worthy and we'll see you next week. Take care. <laughs>